0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I am Tevi Troy, your host, and this week we're going to be discussing This Burning Land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict by Greg Myrie and Jennifer Griffin. The word transformed in the subtitle is extremely important, as Myrie and Griffin talk about how they went to be posted in Israel during what was a relatively calm and placid time in the conflict and they thought it would be a good place to raise a family. What they found, as the Intifada began in 2000, was that it was not only not a calm place, but it was a place of many tragedies, large and small. And it is these tragedies they talk about in their very interesting book. So I will get them on the line, and they will join us for the podcast. Hello, we have Greg Myrie and Jennifer Griffin on the line. They are the authors of This Burning Land. And, our, and a book about their, epi- their experiences uh, in Israel and the Palestinian territories is covering it for Fox News and for the New York Times. G- Greg and Jennifer, hello. Hi, Tevi. Hi, good morning, Tevi. This is the first time on New Books in Public Policy that we have done a, in, an interview with two authors. We've done a joint authorship before, but we only interviewed one of the authors. So given that you guys are married, I guess it was convenient to work on the schedule. <laughs> uh, but why don't we start off, and I'll let you guys order in the – uh, answer in the order you think is, is appropriate, but well, why don't you each tell us a little bit about yourselves and who you are and how you got to be in the place where you were when you started writing the book? Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Greg Myrie, and
1: I was a foreign correspondent for 20 years with the Associated Press and the New York Times. And I met Jennifer on my first overseas posting in South Africa. Uh, we saw the final years of apartheid there. Uh, from there, we went on to to Pakistan and uh, covered uh, both the uh, uh, what was uh, a lot of the events that that we see unfolding today were happening. At, uh, the beginnings of it were happening in the in the time we were there. We spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, saw the rise of the Taliban. Uh, after after our assignment in Pakistan, we moved to Nicosia, Cyprus. Uh, worked all uh, around the region, uh, particularly in Arab in Arab countries in the region. Uh, we spent three years in Moscow in the late 90s at the end of the Yeltsin era, and the beginning of the Putin era, and then we moved to Jerusalem in 1999, and it was pretty quiet when we got there, and we thought, well, it's, you know, we've been in all these, these war zones and all these places filled with conflict. Uh, here we're going to, to see something dramatic, the the end of this monumental conflict, and This would be a nice time to have a start a family, and uh, within a year, things blew up, and we found ourselves in a very different situation than we had anticipated.
2: In fact, we met in Soweto um, at the end of apartheid. I I was a student, and I'd gone down, and Greg was working for the AP, and it was the first legal ANC rally before Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Um, We met there, started covering uh, really... Through no intention, we started covering wars across Africa, and then we moved to Pakistan. And we spent our honeymoon in Kabul. The Mujahideen were still fighting each other. It was a civil war. Um, Al-Qaeda was just sort of showing up on the scene. Taliban was being formed, as Greg mentioned. And, um, and then Greg was the AP News editor uh, in the Middle East, based in Cyprus, and we traveled to every place except Israel, so Iran, Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon. And uh, we spent three years in Russia and then made our way to Jerusalem. And, and as he mentioned, at the, uh, when we first got there, it looked very like it was going to be peaceful. And uh, Greg writes about in the book, um, the, the one of the, on the first, one of the first days that he arrived, he went up to, um, to the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque in the uh, Temple Mount area of the uh, Dome of the Rock. And one of the striking, I'll let you tell it, but one of the things that struck him was how it seemed like peace was around the corner. And what,
1: what. Well, it was just we, I walked into the Dome of the Rock and there were, there were Palestinian Muslims uh, reading from the Quran, And, and uh, as I looked around the room, the thing that struck me was there were 20 or so uh, Israeli soldiers padding around in their socks. Uh, they inside, been, the inside the Dome of the Rock. Uh, And they had come uh, in uniform but left their boots and their weapons outside, and they were getting a tour as part of the cultural sensitivity training that was going on at the time. And it really seemed to capture the mood of that moment. They were being completely ignored because it was such a routine thing. Um, Israeli and Palestinian policemen would patrol together. There were no checkpoints uh, as you drove back and forth between Israel and the West Bank. You couldn't even tell when you had crossed over from Israel to the West Bank and vice versa. Uh, 150,000 Palestinians came into Israel every day to work. Uh, Israelis would go to the West Bank on weekends to do some shopping. Uh, It it seemed like uh, a a political agreement was just sort of going to be catching up with the reality on the ground there
2: and less than a year later um, I was standing at the base of the Temple Mount just next to the western wall when Ariel Sharon took those fateful steps onto the Temple Mount and um, and that was really a day later the the um, the Intifada the Palestinian uprising began um, I was pregnant with our first child at the time and and um, and through the Intifada we ended up having two children born in Jerusalem. We would cover suicide bombings. Uh, There were some days where I went to work, we say this in the book, literally with a flak jacket and a breath pump. And the girls were born in Hadassah Mount Scopus, the hospital overlooking the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, our second daughter was born on the eve of the Iraq war. And one thing that struck me when we were checking out, we were not given, um, we were not given free pampers as we left the hospital. We were given a certificate for a gas mask tent for the crib because there was such concern that a chemical weapons attack could occur on the, uh, once the Iraq war began. And we write in the book about how it is literally no exaggeration to say that on the day they are born, Israelis begin preparing for war.
0: Wow, it sounds like it was a a real adjustment for you guys, especially given that you'd been in all these hot spots and you thought you were going to have, I don't want to say a vacation, but sort of a (laughs) a more placid time. Uh, What happened? I mean, you say say it was so peaceful, and and people kind of forget how well things were going. I guess there was a spate of bus bobbings right before Netanyahu became prime minister uh, the first time. But then there, there there was that period of calm in 1999 and 2000, and you say Sharon took those those faithful steps, but you also say that in the book that it's not that clear. It wasn't just. It's not as if it might not have happened without Sharon's steps. You say that there are there are some people who say that the Palestinians were preparing for mm-hmm. an intifada, and also some people who said that they weren't. So what happened there? Right. We've we've had this
1: discussion many many times between ourselves, with our friends, with Israelis, with Palestinians, and and I don't think there's any consensus. Even and even in our own minds, there's. There's plenty of gray areas about uh, what what was happening at that time. Um, again, as you mentioned, from about 1996 until 2000 uh, was a period of relative calm. I think it was probably the most peaceful period you had dating all the way back to the 1960s. Uh, however... Uh, The Palestinians were getting very frustrated because the Camp David talks in 2000 uh, got close but didn't reach an agreement and then there were some follow-up discussions. But the Palestinians were feeling we should have had a state by this point.
2: Um, expectations were raised were, by the Oslo Peace Accords. Don't forget, and uh, when Arafat and Rabin um, shook hands on the White House lawn with President Bill Clinton overseeing that. Um, but one of the one of the facts that uh, we look at in the book is the rising frustration on the Palestinian side. And if you look at just one simple figure, um, back in the Oslo Peace Accord, in the early nineties, there were approximately a hundred thousand Jewish settlers living in the West Bank. By the Camp David Accords of 2000, there were 200,000 Jewish settlers living in the West Bank uh, during a period where there were intensive negotiations uh, for a a peace deal and two states for two peoples. And by, um, um, eventually, there were, if you look now, there are approximately 300,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank. That's been a source of extreme frustration and anger for the Palestinians on the one side.
1: I'll just mention one more thing to your to your question, Tevi. Um, I think it's probably impossible to say about Sharon's visit, uh, w- you know, that in the sense that the next day the Palestinians rioted, they were rioting specifically in response to that. But the tension was there, I, th- I think it was certainly quite likely that something else could have uh, could have triggered things and obviously after a a certain point um, the Palestinians weren't just rioting against his visit they were rioting against a whole whole range of grievances that they had but it was just such a clear marker where you had this period of of calm and it was all about negotiations and then Sharon went up to the Temple Mountain the next day the the violence began Um, in fact even just a few days before that um, you know it's something that's almost unimaginable now But Ehud Barak, the Israeli prime minister at the time, invited Yasser Arafat to his private residence in Israel, along with a few aides, and they had a dinner that lasted well past midnight. Um, Barak and Arafat never had a a close or warm relationship, but everybody said that conversation that evening was the the, the most open and frank and positive uh, interaction they had, and they called Bill Clinton and said things were going well. A Palestinian, I think, actually delegations from both sides were planning to go to to the U.S. Uh, to to continue the talks. Uh, and then just a few days later, uh, things things blew up.
2: But what people weren't paying attention to then, and which I think is very relevant to the Arab Spring that we're witnessing right now across the Middle East and the unsettling uh, times uh, that we're seeing in, in various Arab capitals, what they weren't paying attention to then is that while negotiations were taking place during that period, there was also a uh, uh, an organization and a rise of groups like Hamas that were basing their ideology on radical Islam uh, that were serving becoming proxy organizations for um, for Iran frankly um, there's a, a chapter in the book where we interviewed the the captain of a weapons ship that was uh, that was a turning point in the conflict because this captain was a Palestinian captain sent by Yasser Arafat to uh, get weapons from Iran and this was at a time when they were had rolled out the road map to peace and that that was supposed to be President Bush attempt to bring peace between both sides and again two states for two people and Arafat was negotiating on the one hand and the Israelis intercepted this ship it was called the Karine A and I had one of I had access to the captain who, the Palestinian captain once he was captured and was able to ask him all sorts of questions about why he had gone to get these weapons to bring them to the Gaza Strip from Iran and what became very clear at that moment is that even as people were talking about um, peace, you know, groups were emerging that were preparing for war. And the rise of Hamas is something we document in the book that is something that must be understood if you're going to understand what's currently happening in the Middle East.
0: Yes, yeah, it's interesting. I was working in the White House at the time, of the Korean A interception, and the, mm-hmm. the word there was that President Bush asked Arafat about it, and Arafat Mm -hmm. lied to him straight out, and Bush kind of lost all interest in Arafat and and lost all trust with Arafat after that moment.
2: That was the turning point, and in fact, if if I do say so, the interview that I did with the ship captain showed Arafat to be lying because the captain admitted that Arafat had sent him, and that was was an exclusive interview that was somewhat uh, explosive at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, Arafat was... I think we all acknowledge a somewhat squirrely figure. It's hard to, you know, get a sense of his thinking. But what's fascinating about your book is your section on Sharon's thinking. Leading up to his decision to take what you call the, the faithful steps onto the uh, uh, onto the uh, the Temple Mount, I mean, you, you really, it seems like you had a, a lot of access to Sharon. It seems like he was a relatively open guy. I mean, you even have that great story in there that during an interview, he consumed an entire can of Pringles, which I thought was... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't an interview with us, it but a, it became but a, legendary. Another, another journalist. Uh, it was Jeffrey Goldberg, I believe. Exactly. It
2: was, actually. And... Um, uh, but, no, we did I, – I feel like um, we had particular access to Sharon um, because of a, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine who worked for the New York Post, Uri Dan, um, because I worked for Fox News and, and worked for Murdoch. He had long been one of Ariel Sharon's best friends and had, had in fact – Covered him um, as a as a military correspondent for an Israeli newspaper for years back in the Yom Kippur War, and it, so their relationship was very deep, very long, and Uri brought me under his wing and and felt that I needed to understand this very complicated historic figure, and so. I had many interviews with Sharon, and I think we got to know him uh, as well as any journalist there. And, and he was a he was an interesting and complicated figure. And he had really, um, he had evolved in an interesting way by the end of his life. And in fact, he's still alive, which is quite extraordinary, given that he had a stroke um, almost five six years ago. And, you
1: know, above and beyond that, it was just one thing that struck us about the place you know obviously it's small but people on both sides love to talk they were very accessible um you would meet somebody for the first time they might even be a cabinet minister and they would just give you their cell phone number and say call any time um, it was the only place i ever worked where you know often there would be news breaking and you had to urgently write a story on deadline and you know often in those cases you're desperately trying to get a hold of somebody on the phone i would find in israel i in Dealing with both the Israelis and Palestinians, I'd have to sometimes turn my phone off because everybody would be calling me. The Prime Minister's office, the the military, the Foreign Ministry on the Israeli side, and several Palestinian officials might be calling as well. I mean, it was almost it was almost comical. You had this embarrassment of, of riches in terms of uh, being a journalist because you had such such great access. And it was it was a story you felt you could you could cover quite closely as an outsider, where in other places
2: there are few stories where you can get across front lines in the same day. We could cover both sides of a front line of a war in the same day, and that was extraordinary.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think it would surprise people to know that Israeli officials are fairly garrulous and happy to talk to the, the media. But you say that the Palestinians were equally accessible. Is that up and down the line in, in, in the PA and the? Um, and Hamas leaders and, and lower level people as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. The Palestinians were much less organized so it was always a bit of a scramble. You know, for example, if there was some clash and there was some fighting in a very organized way, the the Israeli military would call you and say, would you like to talk to the colonel who was in charge of the operation? Um, and the Palestinians you'd have to, to scramble a little bit but, um, you know, you, you, could, you could call uh, Palestinian officials and Hamas officials and um, you know, it was, it was, it was stunning, of- even even with, the, with the, the Hamas officials, for example, it was, it was very easy to get a hold of them. Um, I, I literally, I mentioned this in the book, um, you know, it was easier to, to get a high-ranking uh, Hamas official than it was my dentist. The dentist lived like one floor below us in our apartment. He always seemed to be booked like weeks in advance. And I could, you know, pick up the phone the same morning and say, I need to make a dental appointment. I need to contact somebody from Hamas. And, you know, so the Hamas official would answer his phone on the first ring. Even when, at times when the Israelis were tracking and killing them, you could still get a hold of these guys. Uh, one of the Hamas leaders, is Ismail Abu Shana, you know, at a time when we knew the Israelis were going after the Hamas leader back in 2003, we went to his house in, in Gaza City and I thought you know, there's going to be a lot of security there. I, I knock on the door. His 10-year-old son uh, opens up, brings us into the living room. He comes down. We chat. Um you Know a couple of weeks later, the Israelis uh fired a missile and killed him right there. Um, so you know, there, there was just this extraordinary well, maybe level they of used access.
2: Their cell phones, too much. <laughs> yeah, course. exactly. I mean, a lot of the um, I again, I think what was extraordinary was the access we had. I mean, one of the things I think we documented very well was the rise of what was known as the Al Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, which were really Arafat's answer to Hamas. They were it was an arming of the secular Fatah members in the you know, in the West Bank as a way to compete for the hearts and minds of, of Palestinians as they, they fought against Israelis. And they they began carrying out uh, suicide bombings to compete with Hamas and and, but we really were able to get into the psychology of these groups. And, and one interesting turning point was when one of the leaders of the Al-Aqsa Brigades, a guy by the name of Zachariah Zubedi, who was from Janine and who we had interviewed periodically throughout the Intifada, there was a turning point at the end where he pronounced that the Intifada had failed. And, and there was a realization that the Palestinians had created quite a mess for themselves by launching this Intifada against... Uh, the Israelis, and there was a disappointment and a profound uh, anger at Arafat and his uh, cronies and his, the the corrupt uh, Fatah infrastructure, that if we had paid closer attention, we would have probably realized that Hamas was going to win the first elections that they held, because if Sakurai zubaydi who had long been loyal to Arafat and been head of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, if he had turned on uh, Fatah there was great disenchantment and anger with uh, Arafat's leadership and and the, the rest of Fatah.
0: You, you, you make it sound, and, and correctly, that the Intifada was a real tragedy from a ma- macro sense in terms of opportunities lost and how it really gained very little from the Palestinians. But in a micro sense, it was a terrible tragedy as well. I mean, you tell two horrible stories back to back, one about the uh, Palestinian principal George Sadeh, who was committed to try and develop peace, and, and he he was killed. And then you also tell the story of David Applebaum, who was a, a doctor who knew how to heal people from uh, from from traumatic injuries, and he was also killed. Can can you talk a little bit about those two stories and, and what they, they what lessons we can learn from them?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, one of the just recurring themes there was the way that that ordinary people got drawn into the conflict. You know, whether you if you wanted to avoid the conflict, you would still get drawn into it. Sometimes you wanted to, to make peace and, and bridge the divide, and you would get drawn into it. Um, two of the best examples were the, were the two people you mentioned. Um, George Sade was a, a principal uh, in Bethlehem, Palestinian. He had been educated at uh, the University of uh, Southern California. Uh, he, got, he went back uh, and, and rose through the ranks to become the principal of this very well-regarded uh, school in Bethlehem. And one rainy night in uh, March of 2003, he was just taking his family out, his, his wife and their, uh, and their kids, to go to the store. And this war is fought on such, in such a small theater, on such a small stage. Uh, there, was, there was Israeli troops in, in Bethlehem at the time. And what he had no way of knowing was that a, a Peugeot car identical to his – had just been involved in a shootout with Israeli troops. So he's driving down the street near his home, uh, again, on this sort of cold, blustery, rainy night. uh, He sees Israeli army jeeps, which he thinks nothing of because they were all around Bethlehem at that time. And as his car approaches, the Israeli troops opened fire and killed his daughter, shot him, shot his wife, killed his daughter. Um, His car sort of... Stumbled to, went around the corner and came to a halt. The troops came up, guns pointed, and and to just to, to make see what they had done. And then they the, there was sort of shock and horror on the face of the Israeli troops when they realized they had they had shot this this innocent family. Um, and unbelievably, as if it were a scene in the movie, the car they were actually looking for was the other Peugeot was parked just ahead of them, where the a couple of the the gunman had had got out and fled, uh, and you know just this this horrible tragedies that you would encounter again and again. Um, the other story you mentioned, you know, equally tragic. Uh, Dr. David Applebaum was a, was an American uh, from from Ohio who had gone to Israel, really made a name for himself in terms of establishing and building trauma centers there. Uh, uh, and And sort of uh, writing the book, as it were, for how to deal with uh these traumatic incidents and he was at Cherascetic Hospital in Jerusalem and ran the, the emergency unit there and often that 's where uh, victims of suicide bombings and other attacks were taken on in September of two thousand and three. He was in Manhattan at a conference on the second anniversary of of nine eleven to to explain how Israel dealt with these traumatic situations. He had flew back to Israel to attend the the wedding of his 20-year-old daughter, Nava, and he got back, uh, and they had six kids, um, big family, they always ate around the dinner table, they never really go out to cafes, but it was the night before Nava's wedding, so Dr. Applebaum took his daughter to a cafe, happened to be in a neighborhood where we lived in Jerusalem, uh, they went to a uh, cafe, Cafe Hillel, and as they were walking in the door, I had just walked in the door, a suicide bomber struck there, killing both Dr. Applebaum uh, and his daughter. And so the next day, uh, instead of the, the wedding ceremony, they were buried with uh, thousands of mourners present. You know, One of the most tragic stories we, we ever encountered there.
2: And that's what we try to do in the book, Tevi, is... To really paint the conflict through the eyes of these characters that we met along the way, and and to tell the story through their eyes, and one of the conclusions we come to is that you really, in order to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and every you know every president comes to town and and tries to roll out a, a new police plan for how to uh, get two states for um, for Israelis and Palestinians, and. If you don't understand the last decade and how the um, and how the conflict really changed the landscape, both psychologically and physically, you can't just dust off these old uh, peace plans, these roadmaps, and and things that hit sit and get dusted off every so often. It's really important to to understand why there's so much distrust on each side and why. People feel really scarred um by the last ten years
0: yeah you you do that, and I think you do it very well, but one other thing in your book that that is different from other books about, about the region is your descriptions of your day to day life as a married couple, a married couple with a child and having an, another child and uh, I, I thought your fast fascin- your discussion on well, deciding whether to go to the market on days when there were a lot of suicide bombings was, was just was really uh, was was really touching and, and quite moving. I mean, here you've got this young family. I mean, you guys are both clearly from the states where you don't really think about it. if you go to Safeway, you just go. You don't think, well, is today a suicide bombing day? I mean, how did you deal with that?
2: When the, well, when the kids first moved back to the states, uh, they were very excited going to grocery stores because I really there were certain arbitrary lines that you would draw in your mind during those those particular days of of heavy uh, suicide bombings and and the kids were young enough that we could keep them somewhat contained and they were pretty oblivious to what was going on even even though on one occasion um, um, and we write about it in one chapter. The the windows of our apartment literally shook because uh, a bomb went off in the Moment Cafe, which was just down the street from our house, and that was Annalise was probably our older daughter was about six months old, and 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 we were passing her back and forth. Greg was getting calls from his editors. I was already called from the Fox News team that was on the scene saying, you know, and and I was running out the door, and and the the we lived in the midst of i mean again it's such a small place this was not a war zone that we were visiting this is a war zone that we that we lived in we raised children in and therefore we had a great deal of empathy for both sides and people related to us i think in a different way and invited us into their families on both sides because of the fact that we had children there
1: also, we had these daily discussions. Everybody at that time had these daily discussions that seemed absolutely absurd and surreal uh, in retrospect. Um, you know, Do you go to a restaurant? If you go to a restaurant, do you only go to one that has security guards at the door? Um, do you go to restaurants that are on main streets or on back streets? Um, we always thought we could psych out the suicide yeah. bombers. Yeah, we, there was, that was a really, there was a really game. I there think. was a bit of a pattern to where where the bombs would go off. The Palestinians would be coming either from the northern West Bank or the southern West Bank, and they would enter Jerusalem, for example, at, at certain places. And therefore, Jaffa Street on the northern side of the city, um, and mm-hmm. Emek Raphaim Street on the southern side side of the city, two main shopping drags, were the most dangerous areas. Uh, the one Emek Raphaim, the street on the was was very near our home and would have been the most obvious and convenient place for us to shop. But we re- wouldn't really shop or go to restaurants there because we knew it was so dangerous. It was a
2: corridor in from Bethlehem. You it, knew there were certain corridors where the bombers would get off a bus or get onto a bus line. And it, it was, you. again, you tried to psych it out like you were even...
1: It, even when you were, if we decided to go to a restaurant in a, in a different, safer area, there was the argument of, well, do you sit outside because the bombs are more deadly in a confined space? Like a bombing in a, inside a bus or inside a restaurant is more deadly. Uh, the, 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 the blast the is is uh, more intense than if it's outside. So do you sit outside on the sidewalk? Well, sometimes, you know, the security guard was out there and a line would form outside and the, the bomber couldn't get past the security guard, so he'd blow himself up outside. If you got inside, some people said, well, don't sit near a window because the shards of glass can be as dangerous as the bomb. So you sit in the back of the restaurant. Um, you know,
2: it was a constant calculation. Go, and-
1: the, the one place we went that was dangerous, but we just felt we had to go sometimes, was, was a movie theater in Jerusalem. And you literally had to go through three separate levels of security. When you drove your car to the mall uh, before you went into the underground parking garage, they would check your car for explosives. Then as you entered the mall, you would walk through an airport-style bomb detector. And then once you got in the mall and were going into the theater, uh, they would wave a wand over you, again, to check to check for weapons. But perhaps the most absurd thing of all was at banks, because a lot of Israeli soldiers and, and some of the West Bank settlers, for example, when they would be in Jerusalem, would have their weapons, their M-16s, uh, slung over their shoulder. And you would see this, this conversation play out again and again uh, a soldier or an Israeli civilian with the M16 would go to the to the inter, go to enter a bank, and a security guard would say, "Do you have any weapons?" And the Israeli would say, "No." Uh, both of them saying this with a straight face, uh, because the guard was not concerned about the gun; he was interested in a bomb. And then he would wave his wand over the the person to prove to himself there were no bombs, and then he would direct. This gun-toting Israeli into the bank, into the nearest teller. Um, you know, a bank heist was the least of this guy's concerns. Uh, so, you'd watch. You know, where else in the world is, is uh, somebody with an automatic rifle directed into a bank, into the teller?
2: But our children actually gave us some of our biggest scoops um, I, when Sharon, after Sharon had um, had his had fallen into a coma and was undergoing surgery. I had it was on a, uh, I had to get a babysitter I think it was on a weekend or something and and the babysitter who came to our house was a longtime babysitter Maya Rifkin and her father was a well known surgeon in Israel and he was uh, little did I know he was conducting the surgery on Sharon that day. And Maya was looking after our two young daughters, and we were all waiting with bated breath to see if Sharon was going to survive this uh, very risky surgery. And I called Maya. I said, Maya, what's your dad's cell phone? And I called his cell phone, and he answered on the first ring as he walked out of the surgery, and he said, nope, he's going to be fine. He survived. And so we beat the – that day, Fox News beat the Israeli channels in in reporting on on Sharon's condition. And it was just – the kind of place where you could get to, it was, as Uri as Dan used to, like to say, it's a small kibbutz. It's small enough that you really get, felt that you got to know so many people uh, on both sides of the conflict, and that's what gave us these unbelievable stories.
0: It's little surprising that he said he's going to be fine, given that he's been in a coma for
2: all... This well, f- fine in the sense of he didn't die. <laughs> but, but yes, you can argue that what is fine in, in the
0: medical world. There's also some farcical stuff you talk about in the book. That that story of the journalist who is kidnapped by Palestinian kidnappers and they are going over a fence and there are three kidnappers, each with a weapon and they each go over the fence and hand the weapon to the person behind them and at the end of the or in the middle, I guess, of the experience, the three Palestinians are over the fence and they've handed all three weapons to the Western journalist.
2: That's when kidnappings were still Yeah, yeah there, was, there, there was a period
1: of uh, for several years, actually, where journalists and aid workers and guys were getting kidnapped with some regularity, but the, as you say, there was a sparsical aspect to it, and the incident you might mention involved Lorenzo Criminosi, who was an Italian uh, journalist who'd, who'd been working there for years and years and had great contacts. and and the palestinians decided to kidnap him and you know told him this was all going to be friendly and in fact even before this before they released him they allowed him to take notes they allowed him to call his office in italy on his cell phone so they and within minutes of that you know the story was all over the website and arab satellite channels had picked it up and so this sort of made the made the episode very uh move very quickly negotiations ensued and the the kidnappers um, you know, who it were uh, had no interest in harming the the victim in these cases. Wanted one of two things. They either wanted one of their relatives released, or friends or relatives released from a Palestinian prison, or they wanted a job in the Palestinian security forces. And this was the quickest way to secure one was to to kidnap uh, a Westerner. Uh, the Palestinian Authority found this very embarrassing and wanted to resolve it as quickly as possible. So they said, okay, just release the guy, release the guy, we'll give you a job. And, and this is what happened And uh, again and again. Now, it got more serious and uh, after about four or five years and 20 or 30 of these kidnappings. And, and Jennifer was directly involved, actually, when it did become more serious. And two of her Fox colleagues were kidnapped.
2: It was actually at the end of um, the Lebanon War in the two- summer of 2006. And we had just heard after 34 days of being up on the border and Katusha rockets landing on the Israeli side, and and this incredible um, conflagration that, that tends to happen every so often in um, in that region. Um, we get the call that the ceasefire is on, and then we get another call from Gaza that that um, my colleague Steve Santani um, and Olaf Wig, both working for Fox News at the time, had been kidnapped. And we drove Directly down to Gaza, myself and the bureau chief, and we immediately hit the hit the ground with our local contacts in, and and started meeting, you know, around the clock, including at some very late midnight meetings with with very wanted members of Hamas and and other militant groups to try and figure out. And we figured out relatively quickly who who was holding our colleagues and and it was a very intense period because it was a real turning point in the Gaza strip where where it was really becoming dicey to become a, to be there as a journalist and what was so surprising to all of us who had covered the place for so long and you said you asked earlier about how it, israeli's were very open to the press but but were the palestinians and yes both sides knew that the press were there were an equally important Part of the conflict in terms of getting their message out, we were a weapon in the conflict as, as important as an AK-47, and we often felt that we were somewhat protected because even when we met with suicide bombers or or, uh, or you know extremists, uh, they, we knew that they wanted to use us to tell their point of view, and and so there was a certain protection in that, and that really changed when those uh those Fox cor- the correspondent and cameraman were kidnapped and there was an introduction into a whole different, really very vicious uh part underbelly of the of the uh community and the uprising that that I'm not sure that Gaza has ever really recovered from and journalists are still hesitant to this day to spend much time down there.
0: Right. And of course, some of the other kidnappings are are deadly serious. I mean, I'm sure Gilad Shalit, who's been kidnapped for three years, is not getting his weapons handed to him by the Palestinian captors.
2: Again, Gilad Shalit was taken the summer of uh, that summer of 2006 when when um, our Fox colleagues were kidnapped. And I really think that was a turning point in the mentality and the tactics and and strategy of of Hamas and and other groups in, in Gaza.
0: One one thing that you say in the book is that um the solution is probably not that hard to figure out but that there you use the word pedestrian leaders you know you don't have the kind of titanic legendary leaders these days. Uh what do, what did you think of um Pr- Prime Minister Netanyahu's visit to D.C. this past week? It seems to me that the Netanyahu we're seeing today is a very different figure, a kind of larger figure than he was back in, in 96 when he seemed a little um, unprepared for the task.
1: I, I think he, he knows what he wants to say. Uh, he, uh, he, has, uh, he understands American politics very well because he grew up here. Uh, he's got a fairly stable coalition government right now. Uh, so I think he came here feeling very confident, and therefore was very willing to to take on President Obama and, and sort of fire back with, at statements by the president that he didn't like. Uh, however, I think it was also probably disheartening for a lot of people uh, that uh, it seemed pretty clear there's not going to be any any progress. And if you if you look down the road going into a presidential election cycle, uh, it, it seems very unlikely you'll see any great initiatives or great movement. Uh, The Israelis feel very concerned with all the events in their neighborhood, the the sort of Arab spring. Uh, They want to wait and see how the the dust settles before they make any moves. So, you know, you you saw a very confident Israeli prime minister in the sense that uh, he doesn't feel he needs to make any moves right now that he doesn't want to make. Uh, But I I think we're we're probably not going to see any progress on the negotiations or, or peace fronts.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good lead-in to uh, what is our signature question here on new books and public policy, and I want to thank both of you. You've been very generous with your time. Our final question is always: If you were czar for a day, what would you do, based on what you've learned from the book, to solve the problems that we're, we're facing here? I know you're journalists, and there's a little difficulty in in responding to the question, but you know, what I mean, there got to be some things that you've learned that you could recommend.
1: Sure, I think and I think the main point that we we drew and from our, our time there and we'd like to make in the book is that things have changed dramatically over the past decade. And you, I think, therefore, you need to act uh, as hard as it is going to be to solve this problem, and it's harder today than it was 10 years ago. Every day that passes, it's going to get harder still. So I think, you know, the United States and the international community uh, being engaged is is critical and and being engaged. I think with all the players and at some level, um, you know, everybody has has is has a, a role to play there. And if you don't address those concerns, we've seen various groups can can upset the process if they're not included or they don't feel a part of it or if they don't uh, uh, give their uh, their blessing to it. So I think is this issue every American president since Terry Truman. Has either voluntarily or involuntarily been dragged into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a major way, um, and so there is no escaping it. And therefore, I think it's important for for the U.S. policymakers to engage and and, and stay engaged because it will it, the issue keeps coming up again and again, and it gets tougher to solve every every go round.
2: Well, and I think I would take a slightly different lesson from what I learned there. I think, um if I were a leader in charge of dealing with the conflict, the thing I learned was that you don't raise expectations you don't raise expectations and then not follow through and what I've seen in in successive administrations is there or in recent in the last uh, decade is sometimes there's a tiptoeing into the conflict and then a retreat and you If you raise expectations and you lay down words you you really have to act. And if you're not prepared to act, you really shouldn't say those words because usually when expectations are raised and there's no follow through, as we've seen on numerous occasions uh, from Western leaders, uh, that violence is the outcome and the people who pay the price are those living in the region. And, And so I was very concerned to hear certain words stated uh, in President Obama's speech about 67 borders and with some land swaps, with no clear mechanism or intention, it appeared, to follow through. And and so I felt that that was unnecessarily stirring the pot and raising expectations, but also... Uh, unrealistic at this moment in time i thought it was a a strange timing to bring it up at this moment when there's so much uh, unknown about what the arab spring will bring and so words matter and what i would say is that i've learned that you don't raise expectations by saying words that you don't have a very serious follow-through and mechanism to implement
0: words matter an important lesson about a troubled region the authors are greg myrie and jennifer griffin The book, This Burning Land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Teddy. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Greg Myrie and Jennifer Griffin, the co-authors of This Burning Land, Lessons from the Front Lines of the Transformed Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. In the book and in the interview, Myrie and Griffin talk about what it's like to raise a family in a land filled with conflict and what it was like as journalists to talk to very vibrant, active, loquacious, but also ultimately competing people and what they found in their time posted in Israel. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And until next week, this is Tevi Troy saying, keep reading.